In this episode of Stemiverse podcast, Marcus and I talk with Pip Cleaves. Pip Cleaves is the National Education Manager for Code Club Australia, a not-for-profit organisation that has supported the development of over 18,000 clubs and 65,000 students to code every week. She also works as a sessional lecturer in the Education and Arts Faculty at the Australian Catholic University. She has worked extensively within the education industry nationally and globally and in education technology since 2005. She also runs a small business to provide professional learning to educators around technology. In this discussion, Pip talks about STEM education, Code Club, technology education support for teachers, schools and libraries, education volunteering and much more. This is STEMiverse, podcast episode 15. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dunmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. So here are we are at the Stenverse um, studio with Marcus and okay. Pip Cleaves, and I'm very excited to, uh, to have you on we met a couple of times in the past, in the last couple of months, I think. Uh, first time at the STEM Robotics Meetup in Sydney and then at the Edutech Conference, although the Edutech Conference was so busy that we didn't really get a chance to talk. So <laughs> I'm really glad uh, that uh, I've got a chance to, to ask you so many questions today. So, Thanks um, for having me. No, it's, it, it's great, and thank you for making the time. I know that you're super busy uh, because you had uh, you were working on some really amazing projects, uh, and your last few months have been very hectic. So uh, we'll, we'll try to touch on that and explore all that great stuff you've been working on. So how about you take a few minutes and introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a bit about you, so a little bit about your history, and um, you can go back as many years or decades as you like, it's no problem. <laughs> We'd like to know what, uh, how you got to where you are now, and then take a few more minutes after that to tell us about your current projects. Okay, no problem. So um, those who don't know me, I'm Pip Cleaves and I am, oh, what's the best way to explain? I, I'm an educator. I see myself as someone who likes to make a difference for students and who likes to make sure that our students are ready to do whatever career they want to in the future. And it's our role as teachers to do that. So I'm an educator at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm what we call a late to teaching person. I used to be a translator. So I'm, um, I worked for many years, or not many years, but I worked as a translator, t- translating Japanese. So I went through school and university learning Japanese, and then I spent quite some time over there in Japan and, and in Australia as well. And I think... First fun fact about Pip is that I once worked in a project as a translator for a Japanese NASA program. Um, So in the mid-90s, Japan was working to create, as part of the space station, their role was to create a space vehicle, an automated space vehicle, an unmanned space vehicle. So they were doing some tests in Australia on their prototype, and those tests were happening happening out at Woomera. And uh, for a time I was there, the token Australian in the team helping to translate. And um, it's very ironic that I did that work for someone, for Japanese NASDA, as, they, as they're called, in ASDA. Um, and now I'm working in an organisation that um, called Coke Club, and we often do things that are linked with moons and things like that that I'll talk about later. So um, I kind of come from this world of translating, and then I lived in Japan for a long time, and I had all my family over there. And then I moved back to Australia and went, hmm, I did that typical teacher thing what am I going to do so I decided that I enjoyed helping out and teaching and I've done some English teaching in Japan so I quickly did a did a um I call it my cornflakes degree so I upgraded myself to become a teacher um in a graduate graduate diploma and then started teaching um secondary Japanese at Singleton High School in the early 2000s and um that's where I kind of started playing with the concept that um I think I went into the classroom wanting to give my students 
the opportunity to see the Japan that I'd experienced so deeply. So I wanted students to see the real Japan, not what I call the temples and kimonos that we traditionally use in a Japanese teaching classroom. So I started, I noticed that I could get internet into my classroom and things like that. So I started getting my students into McDonald's website or into Japanese TV and things like that. So that kind of got me working with IT in my classroom a little bit. And um, then, as happens in rural New South Wales, there was a school a couple of towns up the way, Scone, that wanted to teach Japanese but didn't have a Japanese teacher on board. So my boss at that time went, oh, people video conference with you. I've heard it can happen. Let's do that. So we set up an ad hoc system of me video conferencing and teaching stage six Japanese through video conference and using, I think back then I used a PB Works wiki to get students to get the content to the students at the other end. And then we'd have meetups every now and then. So then I became to believe that this technology can actually give opportunities that can't be held had elsewise. And then somebody noticed me doing that somewhere, and it was round about then that the New South Wales Department of Education rolled out the Connected Classrooms program that kind of just put interactive whiteboards and video conferencing in every school in New South Wales. So I got pulled into a team that ran around and trained teachers how to use that. So that kind of moved me from IT into using it into a professional development sort of space. And as that program started to to roll um, roll out, um, the digital education revolution started, long live Kevin Rudd, and we had laptops given to all students from year nine to 10. So I started working in the Hunter area as the support person to help teachers and schools use the laptops in the classroom. And then I went from there into the state office in Sydney and I did this crazy commute from the Hunter Valley to Sydney for about six months driving down and back and it was like really crazy but it was wonderful. And then started working in state office there. And that was really fun helping. That kind of helped me to understand the power of coaching as a tool to help teachers understand how to integrate technology into their classroom and to build relationships around change, if if that makes sense. And then after that, oh, my goodness, then after that, I decided to go and play on my own in my own little company. So I started a company. This is for a couple of years in 2013. And as I was doing that, and towards about the end of 2014, I went, you know, I've been out of the classroom for a while. Do I really know what reality is? I think I need a little bit of a reality check. So I ended up going back into a school for 2015 and 16 as head teacher of learning innovation at Sydney Secondary College, Leichhardt campus. And that was really good for me because it helped me to realise that, that this technology does make a difference and what I think is actually real and what we need students to be doing is not necessarily what is happening at the moment. And I also came to understand that my place in a big system is something that frustrates me completely. So I made the decision to leave and go back out on my own, in my own agency again. And it was about time, that time that Code Club started uh, chasing me and um, to work with them. And I'm like, no, I want to work on my own. I want to work on my own. And then I watched them and saw what they were doing and realised that I really do like the ethos and the not-for-profit focus. So now I'm the National Education Manager for Code Club Australia, which is a wonderful new role for me, and I'm really enjoying it. And there you have Pip's life in five minutes or less. (laughs) Jeez. Okay, (laughs) I I think I filled a few pages worth of notes here. (laughs) Have you written a book about all that? And I haven't even put any personal stuff in there, yeah. so seriously, guys, you got the abridged version. Yeah, so I'm one of these, these I move around a little bit with my job because I, I don't think I've really found that place that I'm 100% comfortable with yet. Or maybe the imposter syndrome just gets me too much and I have to flip to my next thing before somebody works out that I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, Marcus, questions. <laughs> what is Code Club? Yeah, that's, that's one of them. Thank you. Yes, a bit of contact. Thank you. So Code Club is an international organisation that um, our parent company is the Raspberry Pi Foundation. So many of you know and love Raspberry Pis, and I'm actually I'm he- I'm so excited. I'm heading over to London in a month to do the Raspberry Pi Academy, which will make me a Raspberry Pi certified educator, which is really exciting. So this is home economics and cooking. 
Uh, yeah, right. I actually, the other day on Facebook, I went, yeah, I'm off to London. I'm off to Raspberry Pi Academy for my non-geek friends. No, I'm not going to a cooking course. So Raspberry Pi is a, um, a do-it-yourself computer is the way I explain it. So it's a the insides of a computer that's very, very cheap and we can add to it all our keyboard and our monitor. It doesn't work unless you add stuff to it and you give it an operating system. So the operating system we often give to a Raspberry Pi is based in Python and Raspberry Pi has its own sort of operating system. So it teaches students and grown-ups like me how computers actually work and how we can create our own bespoke computer. And I love them as kind of how I think about it. So Raspberry Pi owns Code Club, doesn't own it, but they're our parent foundation. And then we have um, clubs or offices in 11 countries around the world. And we have about 100,000 students within those 11 countries. And we're a not-for-profit organization in Australia. We're funded by the Telstra Foundation and the federal government. And we also have some smaller sponsorships around the place as well that fund us to help teachers to use technology. So we have about 120 hours of resources that teachers can use to help them teach coding in the classroom. So the way I see it, we're not an an immunization service. We don't head into schools, give people a shot in the arm, do workshops for students and then leave. We go in, we help teachers, we support teachers, we give ongoing resources that are top quality, that are free, that are open source, and we leave them to do their business and sort them through. Because each school, as you know, has different needs. We also help libraries, so community centres and libraries, to create code clubs as well. And we try, so we kind of, that's sort of like the the other arm and the other aspect to Code Club, which I absolutely adore, is that we match volunteers into clubs where possible. So say, um, Peter, you're a coder and you love coding, but you want to help some kids in your area to learn code, then we match you to a local library or a school if they've asked, and we help you to get in there and help whoever's running the club to volunteer and help to make that coding happen. So I think that's very powerful. When we make connections between industry and students, we open possibilities and opportunities for kids for their future. And that's something that um, Code Club is very proud of, and that's one reason why um, I love working here. Could you tell us how do you, what are the basic criteria for somebody to be a volunteer, suppose a mentor in Code Club? So as a volunteer, all we ask is that um, people, A, obviously have a coding base. We ask for working with um, back, working with children background checks to be performed, first of all, of course. And we just want someone who is passionate about helping children to learn stuff. So we try and keep those um those rules, if you like, at a minimum, so we just get people in and helping. Um, we're also very lucky that being part of the Telstra family, the Telstra Foundation funding us, we're able to, um, Telstra have these internal programs, so workforce giving programs, where people in Telstra get a year, I think this is right, a day a year to do volunteering work for free. So they often come, we've got an event coming up on the 28th of July that Vogue, you know, the magazine Vogue, they're running an event called Vogue Codes for Kids. So we've got some a whole heap of Telstra guys coming in to help us run that event. So we've got different providers in there doing different things. So we're kind of, it's like a big, like an edutech but a mini version, if that makes sense, for kids with a hands-on thing. So the Telstra guys come in and help us. Just a little while ago, we did a Vivid event and we had a whole heap of guys come and help us with that as well. Right. So uh, just to get a better understanding of what Code Club teaches, so of course there's coding and I suppose you start at an early age, so very young kids. Um, are there any particular languages that uh, kids or that you are more optimized to offer in your classes? And um, also, I wonder, can kids come directly to you or do they need to be a member of a library or a school? Okay, great questions. Just writing down notes here so I don't forget because I do go off track a little bit. Um, So we say that Code Club is for ages from 8 to 11. However, in September, we're extending that to the age to 14. So at the moment, it's 8 to 11 with an extension to 14. Um, And we, our curriculum, as we call it, covers, starts with Scratch, 
and we have um, two different levels of scratch work and it's an incremental, the projects are incremental in their knowledge for students. So they assume more knowledge as they go through and they get harder. Um, and they're lots of fun. The resources that we have for teachers are step-by-step -step guides for students. Um, we have fully worked solutions for teachers and we have some FAQs that students often ask when they're working through those projects. So as a teacher, Everything is there for them to just, um, some teachers, they call it open the door and let the kids on the computer and off they go. But back to my point. So Scratch, we have HTML slash CSS. So we have some, that's the next step up from Scratch. And then the next step up from that, we have Python. And we'll be developing Python more in the future. And we also have some Raspberry Pi work, of course. And we've just added this week some Sonic Pi activities. So um, I haven't played with those yet, but I'm really excited because they're. I'm really keen that once we do some browser coding, that we start doing some physical computing coding and we start coding things that actually do things, if that makes sense. So the Sonic Python being that it's about sound, we can then use it with our different projects and do different things with it. So I think that's cool. Oh, and we also do Sense Hat. Uh, oh, Sense Hat. Well, there's a lot of... Uh uh, words here that we need to explain to our audience. So uh, I think the audience know what's, knows what Scratch is because yep. we've touched that many times mm -hmm. in previous episodes. But what about things like HTML, Python? How do those relate to Scratch? And uh, what are they? Can you give us an example where students can apply these languages? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll try. Um, yeah. And we'll give it a go. So Scratch is, to me, a beautiful visual coding. So it's it's kind of half-baked coding is how I think of it, and it's a great introduction. HTML is what we use to create websites and things on the internet and it's that more of the geeky lots of writing and it's like you have header codes and you have you have divs and you have lots of like black screens with white writing on when you look at it so it's more that base coding the traditional code i'm it's really simplistic guys yeah yeah right mm -hmm. yeah and then um python takes the next level and python is um a really good a really good language for if, like it's a good baseline if people know python then they can learn other language like a general language language yeah so i explained that coding is codes like different coding languages it's like traveling around the world mm -hmm. and having like 30 different languages we've got english we've got french we've got german well we have the same with languages uh, with coding as well so we have um Scratch is a very basic one, of course, but we've got Python and we've got HTML and we have C++ and we have Ruby on the Rails and we have all, we have JavaScript and we have Java. So we've got lots of different ones, but some of the good basic ones to learn, are the Scratch, of course, and the HTML, which codes websites and things online, and then Python, which also codes things online, but things like Instagram was coded using Python, and YouTube has Python base to it. So it's a, it's a nice, apparently in the coding world, it's a good base language for everyone to learn. So yeah. if there's any advice, learn Python. Do some Scratch, but then head into Python. Uh, just at this point, I should mention that by the time then, say, uh, an 11-year-old uh, graduate of, uh, of Code Club uh, with a bit of Scratch in the background, HTML and Python, they, they are well-versed in oh, programming, so. right? From Python, then they can just choose uh, a large number of possible options for what mm -hmm. to do next. And they would include, of course, state-of-the-art programming languages, you can go to databases, cloud yep. computing, Correct. and so many other things. And I think they would have a confidence. So in my mind, the student who's been going to Code Club for a while is really good at um, problem solving, thinking, well, I want to create this. So what's the blocks I need to do in order to create that? Oh, my goodness, something isn't working. Not a problem. I'm going to go into the code and I'm going to debug it and try and work it out. So they have a confidence and they have a base so that they can layer the knowledge on top of it as they go through their, uh, through discovering new tools for their future. Awesome. Yeah, completely agree <laughs> with that. I think uh, as Resilience. both me and Marcus are programmers like for okay. a very long time, and um, we actually love bugs. 
right? Bugs are helping us to constantly improve our programs and our work. And it's almost a friend. I quite like bugs. What about you, bugs? <laughs> I won't go quite that far. <laughs> if we think of traditional education, right? In my mind, it's all about getting everything perfect all the time, right? You handed something to your teacher when you believed it was perfectly done. You marked the work to give yourself out of 100. It was all about the perfect, yeah? But when we look at coding, it's like, oh, yeah, it's working. Oh, my goodness, it's not working. Then the real thinking starts, right? It's about really celebrating that failure and working out how do things make things better because of that failure. And I think that's quite different. It's a different headspace. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great lesson to, I think that's one of the reasons uh, of why programming is such a good thing to learn at school for mm -hmm. any kid. And that's something that we, uh, we discuss often with our guests. So we ask, for example, why is programming important? And there's a lot of reasons of why it's important that we touch, but based on what you're saying here is another good reason is you become really used to problems <laughs> and then yeah. the process of problem solving because problems and programming go together. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> the other reason I love this sort of space as well is because I have this fear that, so say our, our young young learners around us, they've, they're raised, they're being brought up in this world of perfect consumerism. So they pick up these tablets that look beautiful and work beautifully. They open their laptop and everything is just beautiful. They pull out a, a gadget out of a box and it just turns on and it works beautifully. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it's charged, yeah. Um, but we have to show them the insides of those. So why does it work perfectly? Why does it work beautifully? We have to get the raspberry pies and the micro bits and the, you know, the the sense hats in their hand to see that, oh, this is what's inside that other gadget that I'm playing with. This is what makes it tick and I can make that happen myself. So it's the analysis. Yeah. When we do that, then they'll start inventing and stop consuming. And we need the invention to keep up with this whole trajectory of change and innovation that we're seeing. We need that innovation headspace. So they need to see this stuff. Why does the Raspberry Pi let you do that versus a, I guess, a regular computer? Okay, because when you take the outside box off a regular computer, it's got a Raspberry Pi in it, sort of, kind of, right? If you think about it that way, it's the brains, it's the, the human digestive tract of a computer and it's actually there for you to see how it works. And then you're actually, it's like just a thing until you start tinkering with it and bringing it to life and giving it a brain with its operating system and you're giving it arms and legs with the periphery devices and all of a sudden it's working. And that's why, you know, we, have, we need to do that with students. So you're just, that sounds quite expensive, letting the the kids break, well, essentially have the insides of an expensive computer and let them play at it. Yeah. I see where you're going with this, and let me tell you that a Raspberry Pi is, <laughs> is the cheapest way you're going to get a computer in your kids' hats because, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to Google it while we're talking because I know, actually, no, you can tell me, can't you, Marcus? Marcus I know you've you. got it right yeah. there. Um, Raspberry Pi said definitely under $100. Mm -hmm. Um and if you grab an old monitor and mouse, yeah, sorry, I'll stick <laughs> through to you. Um, anyway, so you can you can make them very 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 cheaply, and you can make them from orphaned computer parts around your around your school. So last year at Leichhardt, we had our Tech Ninjas group, and I loved our Tech Ninjas groups. Just happened to be a group of boys, so we also had a girls version called Girls Make as well. But anyway, the Tech Ninjas. One day we went, what can we do with them? The one I see them, so I gave them an old laptop each and a micro, like a precision screwdriver set each and said, okay, the first group to pull it apart, pull the motherboard out and show us and then put it back in and make it turn on while it's still plugged in wins. 
a JB Hi-Fi voucher for $10. I'm like, this ain't going to fly. They're not going to enjoy this. Anyway, sure enough, for weeks and weeks on end, off they went. And every time they pulled a component or a bit out of a laptop, they, they'd look at it. What does this do? And they'd go onto Google and they'd, mm. they'd, watch, they'd watch videos to see what all the bits were. And they started taking photos of the processes of pulling things apart. And some of them were just so excited because they'd never seen the insides of a computer before. And I thought that was really cool. So then I think, you know, that sort of stuff is great for students. Yeah. So you see that the, uh, the analysis and the curiosity coming through when you're not afraid that you're going to break something because it's so expensive and it's, uh, you're going to get in trouble if you do. But you remove that fear and kids just explore. They find out things for themselves. Were you explaining what the various parts are or were they able to just figure out everything through Google and asking to around? To be honest... To be honest, I didn't know what the parts were myself. <laughs> so so we, we did a quite a lot of team exploration. What's this, Miss? Ah, oh, no, let's go find out. And um, <laughs> we'd, we'd go and find year 11s in the playground, who knew, year 10, sorry, in the playground who knew what things were and stuff like that. And it, was, it really was um, connectivism as its best. People were learning from each other and, and that was really cool. So what do you think that children can learn kind of skills and attitudes that can be developed this way that can help them over the long term, like through the adult life? Oh, absolutely. Um, these sort of skills, they really are, I hate the word 21st century, future life skills is probably the best way to, to, to say that. So they're skills that just set them up for, it's like my dad, I don't know how he knew how to fix things around the house, right? He just knew all this handyman stuff. It's like kids that know this stuff, it's just helpful for them in life, right? So I think it's it's a, you know, we have to make a concerted effort to give students opportunities to be able to do that. Hmm. So whilst it's generally helpful to know this stuff, when it comes to Code Club specifically, is any of the content that you're creating or putting out there tied to the curriculum? Yeah, absolutely. So that's really essential. And um, one of my side gigs I do is I'm a lecturer at um, Australian Catholic University and I lecture K-6 pre-service teachers. And we have a subject in second year that is the new digital technologies curriculum um, because it is so important for every teacher to walk into school and understand how to teach to this new Australian curriculum. So just to go back a step, it's now mandatory in all states but New South Wales, I think, to be teaching the digital technologies curriculum, as it's called. And that digital technologies curriculum focuses on not just coding, but it focuses on a few different areas of systems and processes. So your computers and what the different bits of computers do and how we add stuff to computers to make a big computer. It focuses on data. It focuses on project management and design thinking through the design and technologies component of the technologies curriculum. And um, it focuses on the coding as well. So it's really important that from kindergarten, we're actually teaching these things. So at Code Club, we've mapped our curriculum to years three to six. So when you pop onto the codeclubau.org projects page or resources page, um, you will see that there's a link there to the Australian Digital Technologies curriculum and it maps all of our projects against the different outcomes in the curriculum. Um, and we'll be continuing to grow that over the next couple of months and making sure that it covers everything. Cool. That's, yeah, very, very cool and quite a helpful resource. So could you tell us about uh, kindergarten kids learning digital technology through uh, as, as your programs are required to be mapped to the curriculum? What does it look like? Exactly. So um, our program is mapped to three to six, but at, if people want to go to bit.ly forward slash ccau technologies, we've kind of done a little bit of mapping. And, of course, this is my headspace, not the most um, most knowledgeable headspace in the universe. But in K-2, it's not necessarily about coding on a screen. It's an unplugged computational thinking sort of process. So it's like what we call CS unplugged. It's things like instructions on 
how to get from your desk to the door in your classroom. So stand up, turn left, move forward three steps, turn right, move forward three steps. So that might be something you can do. Something like folding aeroplanes and following procedure, that's all part of computational thinking. Um, it's about just getting them to understand that um, we give instructions to a robot. So these computers, they don't work unless we tell them what to do. So you don't need to use computers or, or even technology. You can just uh, play around with words, just use, say, your, your legs to or your, your body to imitate a robot and just pretend you're a robot and follow instructions from a teacher or another kid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So even something like uh, the the recipe to make a um, to make a Vegemite and cheese sandwich is a good example of a basic algorithm. How to tie your shoelaces is a great another great one. And if we think about it, that's what we do in literacy, right? This whole procedural text, as we call it, in the big exam in the sky, is all about how to write a procedure. Well, that's mm -hmm. in the younger years. That's what the algorithm is a step in order to control something. So if you did want to start playing around with computers with that, we've got so many different robotic toys out there and I'm hesitant to use names, but I'm sure you'll find them and I'm sure Marcus can add some in in a second. But there are robotic toys out there that are just about giving instructions and following a basic algorithm. So that's what we're looking at from years, from kindergarten to about year two. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Um, so do you think that the work that you're doing now, uh, both at uh, Code Club, um, you know, the work you've done with the curriculum and the mapping and the way that, you know, teaching and education in Australia is changing, um, uh, do you see a trend there that is uh, that suggests that what education used to be in the say 20th century, especially late later part of 20th century, early 21st century, the traditional style of education where we learn how to count, how to spell and all that, all that is changing, it's becoming not just not computerized, but different in order to help kids deal with a very uncertain future. And uh, before you answer that, I just want to link it to your own life. <laughs> because as you were talking, I was just thinking that, you know, you started as a Japanese teacher and then you moved on to a lot of other things, including you know being a pioneer and using video conferencing in in education and uh, setting up laptops and of course the what you do now. I don't think that you planned all that, did you? No, never, never, <laughs> so never. Cool. And nor uh, do I think I could plan the next ten years of my life as well. It's just the way I am. But what I have is a really good solid base of knowledge, right? So. It doesn't matter how I've learnt my geekiness or how I've nurtured my geekiness. The fact is that I've exposed myself to it and I've forced myself to learn through technology. So I guess in terms of education as well, it's the way we deliver it might be different, mm -hmm. but we still have to have a good solid base in fundamental concepts like numeracy and literacy. And we can add on to that different flavours of um, creativity and communication and those future-focused skills, and we have to find a balance of the two. But what we do need to stop doing is mapping success to these basic fundamental skills that we've mapped since 1932, you know. Mm -hmm. We need to be starting to look at the development and actually be assessing and mapping those students' new skills that are going to take them into their future, but not as well as making sure that the numeracy and literacy and stuff is still there, right? So there's a given, yeah. Yeah, I think it's still necessary. We can't not do it. And even when we do project-based learning and even when we take the lift off, the lid off kids' heads and let them do inquiry-based learning and genius hour, we still need to do some fundamental traditional learning. So my classroom is, um, the last two years, has been a pure project-based learning classroom. But I still, in my Japanese classroom, sat there and taught 
taught grammar, I taught vocabulary, I still did that base stuff we needed to learn in order to play and solve problems and be creative, I just pushed through it using technology. So the technology helped that to happen so much quicker in order to get to that other stuff. So that's what I'm saying, the vehicle in which we do that stuff needs to be slightly different and we need to add the other stuff to it. Does that make sense? So, sort of in that vein, if you are, or if you were a benevolent dictator, and part of your role was to be the education, well, I was going to say minister, but let's go with dictator. Sounds better. <laughs> what would you do? Man, first of all, I would tell everybody go outside and learn because I just adore learning outside, but that's got nothing to do with today. Um, what I would do would be to remove our subjects. So I don't believe that now, okay, so you've done English for an hour. Now close your books and move three rooms down the hallway and do maths for an hour. Now close your books and move across to the other side of the quad and do science. I don't believe that is so appropriate anymore um i think if we so i'm working with a school in the hunter that has now um year seven only do four to five subjects and those four so one subject is called stem and it had maths it has science technology engineering and maths are together in one classroom for nine periods a week in a classroom with 60 kids and three teachers and they're in a big room and then they stay in that room and then then they'll move on to the subject called quest and quest is english and hisy subjects so your history and geography and they're in the same classroom with the same 60 kids and just the teachers come to them and it's a it's all project-based learning so every term are these really big projects the learning happens but they're solving big relevant topics that make a difference to them. So in the future, if I was the dictator of education, I would be um, guiding big projects for students to be solving real issues that really do occur in the community around them, be that something just in their classroom, in their school, in their wider community, knowing that the teacher is going to make sure that they've got the skills that they need in order to solve that problem. And it so, takes that pressure away from the step-by-step-by-step education that we've been doing. So you mentioned 60 students, three teachers. They must be really busy. Yeah, what, it's what, a crazy... What do the teachers do in such an environment? <laughs> I know, right? So it's two teachers and a teacher's aide. So that makes the... That, that um, is how the breakdown is. And what they do is they start the lesson with all students together and they talk about what they're going to be doing during their time together that day, and they debrief on what they did last time they were together, and they do some of the, you know, this is what we need to do, this is our plan, and then they split off into groups of 20, so three groups of 20, and during that three groups of 20, they might do some specific explicit learning that's necessary, or they might just head off into their groups of three to do their projects that they're working on. So they actually, they've got a language for this and they call it, first of all, it's a hub of 60 kids and then it's a pod of 20 kids and then it's a huddle of three kids. So between the hub and the pod and the huddle, there's movement in the classroom and at the end of the class, they come back to the hub and they revisit what they've done that lesson and they reflect on the learning that's happened. And while this is all happening, it's all focused on solving a big problem or doing some project-based learning over a long period of time. Was one of the educators in the army? <laughs> it sounds like, you know, battalion, platoon, squad, that kind of thing. It, it, you know, it doesn't feel like that. When you walk into the classroom, it's like um, one of those organised chaos spaces where there's lots of talking happening because the kids are working in projects in small groups. The the teachers are moving around between the different groups and they're, they're sitting down with the students and helping them. They're not stationed out the front like the quartermaster yelling at them. They're actually developing the relationships and walking around with the students and helping where they can and it's really it's it's a noisy sort of a space but it's really nice noisy and the kids 
the kids are learning how to manage themselves and manage their own projects really nicely as well. Um, so it's been a big change, but it's it's nice to see it in action. Has the, uh, I guess it's at the experiment stage or have they got any data yet? So they started it this year. So they're building their data as they go along. Next year, when the, yeah, then they're getting some data, yes. It'll be really interesting to see how it goes. Yeah. I know, right? It's great. Keep an eye out for Curry Curry High School, which is um, just in uh, inland from Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they call their whole concept is called Project Nest. So you'll see them popping around the space. Do you know of any other schools that are becoming interested in that kind of instructional setup? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few around. I'm sure there's quite a few around there. And I know there's a lot of interest. Um, but I I think Liverpool Boys, is it, um, has some really great work in this sort of space happening. Are those uh, schools moving that way because perhaps they have a principal who is keen to try out or do they receive orders <laughs> from uh, It would never be ups. orders for this sort of change has to happen with people who are motivated and people who really want to give it a go. I think it would be very difficult at a system level to insist on these things at this stage. Um, but it's nice to see some schools starting to, as you say, collect the data to try things to see if it makes a difference and um, to see the impact on students and their engagement in learning. How are the schools able to do this? One would imagine that the, mm. I guess the frameworks and the systems that are already in place are so rigid that they, you know, if you're just a teacher, you couldn't do it. You'd have the expectations to that they have. Ask for permission. Mm. With fantastic leadership. I really think a whole school change such as this, it has to come from a, a real stakeholder approach. So all stakeholders, including the school leader, need to be invested in understanding why the change is necessary. So um, this is happening through the leadership at the school. Um, the teachers understand that it's going to help the students and it's going to, you know, the teachers are invested from the heart and making a difference. The leaders want to make a difference and the community understand that it's going to be better for their students in the end. And that's happened as a progression. It's, you know, it's a continuum. It's not a, here, we're doing this now. It's an over overtime progression. How do you convince parents? Because, you know, they, they would be comparing what their kids are doing in an environment like that, which kind of seems weird compared to other schools. Absolutely, but a good leader um, shows that they're there to make a difference for kids and that the whole point of running a school is to really give students opportunities for the future. So by outlining that and showing parents and talking about the importance of future-focused learning, then you can. Parents want the best for their kids, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about telling that story and crafting the narrative so that parents understand that. Because we're all parents. We want the best for our kids, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, I'd like to fast forward a few years, let's say five, five years, or mm-hmm. make, it, make it ten. Mm. Make it ten years. <laughs> how, how do you see? How, how do, you, do see? you see ten years in advance, Peter? I can't do that. Because you uh, think backwards to ten years, right? So what yeah. was that, 2007? We had still in schools in 2007. Like some people think we haven't moved far, but let's think about it. In a school in 2007, you had two computer rooms, probably maybe three. You had classrooms where we never saw inside the classrooms what was happening. Mm -hmm. Teachers would put their piece of paper on the little glass slit so you couldn't see inside the classrooms. We had fully computer pen-based with text, sorry, no computers. So pen and paper-based with textbooks, open to page 20, there's your knowledge for today, take it, go. We didn't have mobile phones in our hands. We didn't have, so the internet was something we did with a ding a ling a ling happening in the background Don't and we were on probably, what, one gig a month maybe? That was quite, uh, well, that was pretty spacious uh, 10 years ago, yeah. So I can't, that difference between then and now and we're on a we're on an exponential curve. So to think what it's going to be in ten years from time, ten maybe I really can't imagine that. Yeah, looking at trends, yeah, five years. Uh, it's it's a trend. Uh, how do you see things? Let Let's focus in in Australia. We know that the federal government has just introduced the new digital technology curriculum, which is mandatory. 
I believe uh, across all states. So that's a big development, uh, a big change. Five years uh, in the future, working on this kind of curriculum uh, is pretty much a generation of students, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, so within five years, we should have students in year seven and eight hmm. that can code beautifully using Python, understand the concepts behind it, create an app, not just a drag and drop ad or, or app on a website, but actually create from base, understand the design thinking process and know the, the project management needed to do that. And I think that's pretty exciting for the industry, the innovation and disruption industry, to know that those kids are coming through. Yeah. And uh, I can imagine all the Kickstarter projects, uh, <laughs> the in the various apps, and just the, the crazy things that we're coming out of those brains. Code Club lives in a startup hub in Sydney, hmm. and it's um, the first oh, time one? from uh, Vivant. Where's that? Uh, Market Street. Market Street. Okay. Yep. So um, we have a we have a space here, and um, it's the first time for me to see this design thinking that I really like, see it in action. So it's all over the walls and it's the huddles happen every day and, like, you can see the thinking on display and I'm like, man, I want students to come in here and see this and know that this is how industry works, that you have to change, like, the way the teachers are telling you and the way you're learning, this isn't the way life is, guys. This is how it works, right? So get with a picture and give it a go. You know, get excited about the universe. But unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily happen. But um, I think in five years' time, it would be great if students can walk into their internship in a place like this and go, oh, yeah, I know what's happening. I got that. Yeah, so kids will be connected to real life much earlier, right? So traditionally, it takes 15 years. You've got to basically leave high school before you know what uh, the rest of the world looks like. Because up to that point, you've been living in, in books, basically in books and uh, looking at a whiteboard. So it sounds like we're, we're equipping all the kids to be able to do tech and STEM subjects, but what about things like art and uh, music? Business. The creatives, the creatives of the world, mm -hmm. which is actually really essential because, um, I mean, I might be going out of limb here, but if you're actually innovating stuff and you're using the technologies as just the vehicle, right? The technology just gets us to creating new things and making new stuff. You need to be really creative and have a good creative sense in order to use the technology efficiently to create this solution to the problem that exists, right? So we do have to be full. That's why this creativity is an important skill that students understand and we expose them to and we give them opportunity. Thankfully, the world around us is a much more beautiful place at the moment and we can see and we can, you know, through using things like the canvas of the world and different browser tools, we can actually access creativity a little bit easier than we have been able to in the past. Um, so, yes, we do have to focus on it and the arts help us to do that. So... You know, it's it's an interesting area, I think, and it's one that art always has to be there. The creative side of the world has to be nurtured and and um, helped. Do you do it? Sense. Do you do any music creation or art creation at Raspberry Pi slash Code Club? Or do you plan at to? Code Club? Well, we just got those resources that are about um, Sonic Pi, if that makes sense, right. and um, ourselves within school, like the stuff we do, not so much, but I guess we just assume that happens. It's a really good point for me to take away and think about. So, Pip, you mentioned earlier at the beginning <laughs> that you've got a new project that you're very excited about, so tell us about it. Okay, so last year, Code Club, in an event called Moonhack, we broke a world record and had 10,207 students coding in Australia. We've just launched the 2017 Moonhack, and we are aiming to get students all over the globe coding. What is Moonhack? Hop onto moonhack.com while you're there. So it is a, literally a world record attempt to see how many kids we can get coding around the globe on the one day, which is the 15th of August. So 
we've got projects on. Um, so if you go to moonhack.com, you'll see there's some projects there. We've got a Scratch Junior project for the really, really, really young guys. We've got a Scratch project and a Python project. And we ask people to complete this project and upload their project link onto the page, which will appear here closer to the 15th of August. And we've got a little sort of a, a facilitator guide there for teachers to help them get ready to do it and for librarians and for volunteers and for anyone who wants to give it a go. Um, there's support there, but basically let's just get our kids coding, a nice introduction or a bit of a challenge to some kids. It's a global competition this year and um, it's just happening. <laughs> can I, can I, I'm just looking at one of your Python programs, yeah. uh, sorry, challenges. Can I just read out uh, just a sentence to give our audience an idea of what these problems look like? So can I just read a sentence? So it is the year 2049. You're on a solar mission to restock the base on the moon with soil and seeds to grow more plants. You have just landed, but you are in trouble. You have landed 300 kilometers from the moon base. You can get to the base in three days on your lunar rover. The Lunar Rover can only fit you in your spacesuit and four other items. And then there's a list of items below. Which ones would you bring? <laughs> so exactly. the choice. So, I know. So students are going to code that Python activity yeah. so that people come along and they say, you know, bring A, three litres of water, B, shampoo, mm -hmm. C, an extra spaceship, and D, a shovel. And it'll go, no, you've got chosen the wrong things. You need think about it again and try again. So they're doing the coding around the choices in this. And in the, in the Scratch project, we're coding Scratchy so that when he's on Earth, he only jumps a little bit. And when he's on the moon, he jumps a big bit because of gravity. Yep. So um, they're the different sorts of activities we, we've prepared for teachers. Every step of the way is there for students to complete. That's awesome. Yeah, we're definitely going to have this in our notes. I really do hope that we are back in the moon with our moon base in 20, <laughs> what was it, 2049. Because things be right now look, look a bit bleak in that respect. Indeed, uh, indeed. That's, that's awesome. Thank you for letting us know about that, Pete. No, so thank you. Moon, Everybody moon needs to just jump on the page and sign up. Um, and then I'll, you can even do the projects before the 15th if you want. Just upload your, your shared project links on the 15th. Is it a team effort or individual? Individual, Great. because we're counting individual kids. Mm -hmm. I heard a whisper the other day that we want to get 100,000 kids coding around the world we've had five thousand sign-ups in the last week so that's really promising i'm going to sign up to uh i don't count as a kid though i'll get my kids to sign up though yeah yeah i think uh, you can uh, sign up for as any age are there any age restrictions we're What's saying <laughs> from five to 18 because we've got scratch junior projects there yeah, so they're good for our young learners and then at the python as a quick little activity for older yeah. students as well is yeah. possible that's awesome. Great. Well, let's, uh, I'd like to ask a few rapid fire questions. Yes. <laughs> Is there a particular person uh, alive or dead that has influenced you the most in the way that you teach? And it doesn't have to be somebody from education. It could be a philosopher, scientist, uh, sports person. Uh, anybody so I'm going to take the, the focus of that away from teach to the way that I work. And yes, there's a um, my old boss, a lady by the name of Diane Marshall, who spearheaded the laptop program in New South Wales, she told us, taught me that when you're innovating, you walk around roadblocks. You don't let the roadblocks stop you. You walk around and you keep going and you keep trying and you keep just working. She taught me to innovate within a box. And that's something that I will always, always um, be thankful for and hope that I can move as a legacy with people I work with as well. Yeah, that's great advice. Go around the obstacles. Yeah. Don't bash your head against <laughs> obstacles. Not good for you. Correct. So I've got to ask, since you're into languages, what is your programming language of choice? So you must know quite a few. You're, you do Ruby, beautiful Ruby with Sonic Pi. I've played with Python. Ruby and I've played with stuff, but I have to admit that Scratch is my is my skill level at the moment and I'm learning every day. So I'm on a mission to learn Python at the moment as well so that when I go to Raspberry Pi school, I'm not like really embarrassed. Do you think that every teacher should know Scratch? No, I think every teacher should understand 
that within computer science we have, um, I think they need to understand the concepts of computer science and breaking things down to algorithms, of problem solving, but I don't feel that every teacher should know how to code because that's an extra thing that teachers do not need. They need to know how to open opportunities, how to support, where to go for help, but I don't believe they need to know how to code themselves. I was not talking about uh, coding in general, but oh, the okay. basics of Scratch, especially since yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, it's pretty much everywhere. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's not a big investment. See, um, with Scratch, it's probably what? It's an afternoon's. Yes. Uh, one, like a month. The they have the skills that you mentioned. It's not much. I'm learning through the Code Club resources. So if a teacher goes onto the Code Club AU.org, and the resource page and just works their way through. And they're actually not bad. They're about half an hour length in, a, in sort of long. It's a nice way to develop some skills and some confidence. And if it works for students, it's going to work for teachers too. Uh, any advice that you'd give, especially to new uh, teachers, just coming out now, very excited, they're ready to teach. Do uh, it. Yeah. Just learn, do it. Learn just, by doing. <laughs> exactly. Sit down with the students and learn with the students. Is one of, I honestly believe that when you just take that teacher lid off and go, hey, kids, let's learn this together because I'm not too sure. I know how to teach you and I know how to help you, but let's learn this together, that it's a great way to get to know your kids and it's a great way to learn. So what professional development uh, expos or trade shows have you been to recently that you've actually found useful in the last year? Meetups as well. Meetups, yeah, don't forget meetups. Um, (laughs) I... Um, I really liked EduTech this year because I really liked that all the stuff that was happening was on the exhibition floor. So people were able to, and you probably found this over at over at your space too, that people were coming and talking and engaging with you and they were listening and they were asking questions. It wasn't just a passive walk around and look at the vendors. It was an engaging with us. It's very live. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed that, and having the Teach Me um, space there was really good as well. Um, other things that I've liked going to, well, I'm actually really excited to be going to EduChange this year. So EduChange is down in Melbourne, um, and it's a really nice space for innovative teacher types to go to. And then other things that I've enjoyed doing lately for learning. I just love hanging. I actually like leading learning. So I was just in Tasmania last week and I had a great two days because when I teach teachers or when I work with teachers, I reckon I learn just as much from them as they learn from me, right? So I love small professional learning where it's all about dialogue and talking and sharing and communicating. So I think it, it seems important for teachers to get a balance of big things and little things mixed in together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, if people want to get in touch with you and discuss anything that they heard, uh, perhaps uh, ask you for help to implement uh, things that they might that have heard and they might want to try out in their schools, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So via Code Club, we have three different ways that you can do professional learning. We do workshops for free. Um, so I'm down in Melbourne next week, and then I'll be in the Northern Territory in a couple of weeks. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Um, so you can look at our Code Club website, look at the teacher training page. So we have the face-to-face workshops. We have online training there that people can do now that I've built um, using open learning. Um, so people can jump on there and do some basic intro to coding. And then people can get me to come out to their school to do things for a fee. So if anyone wants to have me come and work on some specific things or the new digital literacy grants are out there and if you want to pop me in to come and visit you, then you can do that as well. And you can contact me, pip at codeclubau.org. So that's pip at codeclubau.org and that's how you connect me or I'm pretty much always on Twitter as Pip Cleaves, P-I-P-C-L-E-A-V-E-S. So either Twitter or my email is the best way to get me. And, yeah, I'd love to chat and talk about how I can help people. I'm also at PyCon in Melbourne in a couple of weeks if you're that's there. The Prospect uh, Pi Conference? Big Pi Python Conference. Python. Python. Oh, PY, sorry, yeah, yeah, got it. So it's a Python yeah, conference. Oh, that, that will be really good. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm keynoting at that one, so I'm a bit excited. Uh, what are you talking about? Oh, all right. Unless it's a secret surprise. <laughs> surprise. Quick, quick, quick little one, yeah? So um, I am totally against the notion of digital natives. It's not something that has ever sat naturally with me because I don't believe that anyone comes out of the womb with an innate understanding of how technology works, okay? I'm just kidding. But what I do believe is that in our classrooms and in our world at the moment, we have three different types of students with different with their attitudes. We've got exiles, we've got orphans, and we've got heirs. And the exiles are the kids whose parents don't want them to use technology for some reason, and we have to deal with those students in one way. We have orphans, and these are the students whose kids chuck them a, chuck them a tablet and to amuse them and they become the uber consumers of the universe, they have a different approach to technology. And then we have the exiles. And the exiles are the guys like your children, Peter, where you specifically introduce them and develop their technology skills. So um, I'm going to talk about those and how we need to work with those in order for our industry to be prepared for them. Wow, that, that's awesome. Uh, we need to have you back after your <laughs> talk. <laughs> Do a recap. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, Pip. Uh, no, thank really you very much. enjoyed this, this conversation. And uh, we are looking forward to having you back uh, soon to tell us more about all the amazing things that you do. That'd be awesome. So I'm going to get in touch with you. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. -E -E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.